0: When the Irish say, the saints preserve us, they're also sustaining a bit of their pre-Christian Celtic history.
1: Ah, I love Bridget. I love the energy of Bridget, and I love that in Saint Bridget, you get such an interweave of the goddess Bridget that it's hard to tell them apart. You can't pull the strands.
0: The saints the French revere, like Joan of Arc, often have a political side to them. The funny thing is that the most thing she's associated with is she kicked the English out of France. And hear how the actor who played Detective Poirot on TV investigated the biblical account of St. Peter. How did a simple fisherman end up being remembered as the first pope? David Suchet recommends visiting
2: places mentioned in the Bible to better understand the first-century world. And they call it visiting and and moving in the places where Jesus walked. They actually call it the fifth gospel. The footsteps of St. Peter and the
0: favorite saints of Ireland and France. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Understanding a country's religious heritage can really help you appreciate what you'll encounter as a sightseer or even as a modern-day pilgrim to sacred sites around the world. Coming up on today's Easter edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn how some of Ireland's favorite saints have identities that actually predate the arrival of St. Patrick. And later in the hour, David Suchet investigates the first-century world of a Galilean fisherman who would become known to the world as St. Peter. St. Peter. The Catholic heritage of France is filled with the stories of saints, men and women whose stories of their faith often included dramatic sacrifice. And sometimes they got into political scrapes as well. To help us understand the importance of the saints in the history of France, we're joined now by tour guides Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanvo, who live in Brittany and Burgundy. They take your calls in a bit at 877-333-7425. Uh, Call co- St. Patrick, St. Patrick <laughs> and St. Julie. Thanks for joining us. Bonjour. bonjour.
3: bonjour. Now, we don't
0: have anybody in America quite like Joan of Arc, Jeanne d'Arc. When I go to Paris, there must be a dozen statues of, of Joan of Arc just around Paris. You see Joan of Arc so much in France. She's a, a Christian figure, but she's also a French figure.
3: So, I mean, think of that, when you think of statues of Joan of Arc, when when were they made, those statues? Have you seen any medieval statue of Joan of Arc? No. Never.
0: The 19th I mean, century.
3: She, I think. Yes, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. She was canonized in 1920. Whoa. Only. She's a used up figure. She's used for, uh, to, to, for to rally the French. To rally the French, yeah. Right. Before the Marketing. First World War, after the collapse of the uh, empire in 1871. So Joan of Arc was used as a as a, uh, Unification? H- a rally the troops yes, in absolutely. World War I. Yeah. One of the most known statue of Arc in France, in, in Paris, is on top of the sacre Coeur, on top of Montmartre right. with St. Louis. And that's a church which was finished in 1919. So that's, that's exactly that's the same period.
0: Now, historically, uh, why would she be tied to the challenge that, the World War I presented France in 1914. What did she do but centuries before? The funny before? thing is
3: that the, the most thing she's associated with is she kicked the English out of France. <laughs>
0: so she kicked the English <laughs> out of France.
3: Les hors de France.
0: And this is the time when we need England's help to kick the Germans out of France.
3: <laughs> well, <I> know,
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a shortcut, but that's so, <laughs> so, but, but she goes back to, uh, it was the Hundred Years' War, right? And this but that's t-
3: interesting because she didn't kick the, the English out of France at all. She was captured by the, uh, I mean, she, the story behind is that the uh, the French Kingdom uh, collapsed to a very, very small amount of land, and the king of France was not very powerful anymore.
0: What century is this? We're talking about 14, the beginning of 1400s. And there is an existential problem, a threat to France now. England has taken most we of France. We are in the middle
3: of the Hundred Year War, and, and, and England in... has taken most of France. The south is, is used by the Armagnacs, which is a very, very strong family which is running most of the south
0: of France. And the eastern part of France is run by the Burgundian. And then there's this young, charismatic woman who dressed like a man who rose up to lead the army. Absolutely. She long, comes to meet the... Uh, yeah. Long story short. Long story short. Let's
3: make a long story short. That's fine. <laughs> she came to meet the, the king in uh, in the, this royal fortress in Chinon. And uh, she tells him that I'm going to lead you to reconquer your kingdom. She takes him to Reims, where he's coronated as the official king, because he never happened before. They didn't have mm-hmm. the, the strength for that. And she's captured by the Burgundian under the wall of Paris. Burgundian don't know what to do with her, so they sell her to the British, who are putting her to the trial...
0: Uh, as a witch, and burn her on the stake. In what city? In uh, Rouen, Rouen. Rouen. In Normandy. And that's very easy to visit, just a couple hours west of Paris, Rouen. Mm. Yeah. R-O-U-E-N, R-O-U-E-N, I believe. R-O-U-E-N, yeah. And uh, Julie, when you go to Rouen, how can you sightsee with Joan of Arc in mind?
4: Well, Joan of Arc, you can see her everywhere because she started out, she was born and raised in the east, and she had to march all the way across to the west to meet the king, and then march him all the way back to the east to get him crowned in Hans. So in every little town in the north of France, you see Joan of Arc pass by here.
3: She's burned at the stake, and she disappears from his story, uh-huh. because nobody's interested in her. She's, she's part of his story as, as any other character, but she's nothing special. Right. And she becomes something special only at the end of the 19th century, when France is looking for characters to unify the French and get a strong character to, to get the power back. She was canonized in 1920.
0: Let's talk about another uh, saint we'll encounter in France, uh, Saint Louis, Saint Louis, the only French king who was canonized. Only one yet. Mm -hmm. Only one. What's so important about St. Louis, Julie?
4: Well, he, in 1239, when he is the king, he wants to make Paris as important as Rome religiously. His grandfather had done it architecturally by building the walls around Paris, and he wants to make Paris the most important city on the map. And so what he does is he goes to Constantinople and gets a major relic and brings it back to Paris and builds a reliquary for it, which becomes a chapel, the Saint-Chapelle, so reliquary th- a reliquary
0: is a fancy jewel box. Right. But this is actually like a church
4: it's, that's yeah, a jewel it's, box.
0: It's, it functions as the reliquary for right, the crown of thorns. Right, and since it
4: has so many stained glass windows in it, kind of representing the jewels on the jewel box.
0: Well, so when you go into the Saint-Chapelle, you're stepping into the most glorious Gothic space, I think, in Europe. It was all built to house the crown of thorns.
4: Yeah, it was
3: purpose-built for the crown thorn, It's very interesting because it's a very homogenous church style-wise because it was built in four four to six years. We don't know exactly but four to six but years. That's
0: the amazing thing because Notre Dame was built over 200 years yeah, or right, right, This yeah. was built by one architect finished exactly the way it was It was started and that means it has that cohesiveness. Absolutely. Uh, I understand St. Louis could just take little individual thorns off of that thing and, and, and give, give them it to away mm-hmm, for there's favors. There's none left. Right. For favors. Does it actually exist to this day? Yes, it's
4: in the treasury of Notre Dame. All right. They bring it out every first Friday of the month. St.
0: Louis. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about French saints with Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanvo, another saint we encounter in Paris especially, St. Denis. He's the guy who's holding his head in his hands. What's the story there, Patrick? Patrick?
3: But the story is he was a Roman bishop, and he was it uh, was trial by the Roman.
0: So two thousand years ago, he was the Roman Christian bishop, bishop in in Paris. In, in Paris. Paris, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
3: he was in Paris. He was the bishop, and he was arrested.
0: And, and this is after Rome modernized. became Christian, so you could have a.
3: It was no, it was before that. He was when he was not official. I mean, well, so he could do before. that's why he
0: got in. Yeah. He was so he that's
1: was what
3: sent what he got in trouble. Yeah, like like a lot of them, Blondin in in Lyon, like a lot of, of different saints around. have been martyrized around the place before the beginning of the 300s, you were martyrized if you were a Christian. right? At the end of the 300, you were martyrized if you were not a Christian.
0: Okay, so his timing was off. Bef-
3: yeah, exactly. His yeah. timing was <laughs> off.
0: <laughs> what happened to him? How was he martyred?
3: So he was beheaded at, uh, at the feet of the hill of Montmartre, had Beheaded. And, uh, beheaded. and uh, apparently, he picked up his head, walked up the hill, washed his head under the fountain up there, and kept walking on the other side and walked a couple of miles and collapsed. And where he collapsed, they buried him and built uh, this big uh, church where all the king of France are buried. Since, and and named buried since, after him. Named after him. So, so that's a site. suburb of Paris today. Yes, north no of Paris, yes. Saint-Denis. Yes.
0: Saint-Denis. Mm-hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Saints of France with Julie Sanvo and Patrick Vidal. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Williams calling from Miami. William, thanks for your call. Do you have a thought about saints in France? Oh well, yeah, I do. Uh, last time I visited Paris, I, I tend to stop in churches. But I was by after I went to the uh, Pantheon. I stopped in a church nearby called Saint Etienne Dumont, and I noticed that it would have originally
5: housed the uh, remains of. Uh, the patron saint of, of Paris, St.
0: Genevieve, Jean-Bierre, but uh, I don't remember if I read in a guidebook or if there was a plaque there, but I understand that during the Revolution, they had ransacked the church, they'd taken her body and burned it and thrown it in the seine. I noticed that there weren't many reliquaries in many of the churches of Paris. Is this, Is this why? Because they were destroyed during the Revolution?
3: Well, that's most of the reason by that. But very, very often in a lot of places, they very conveniently found
0: them again <laughs> after the revolution. So conveniently, they, re- they find these relics? Yes. I mean, uh,
3: not, uh, not everywhere, but, uh, you know... Because a
0: relic helps bring money to that church. It uh, brings money. I mean, it
3: was not doing that anymore in the 19th century, but still, it was an important part of the so world. the uh,
0: 250 and years ago, during the French Revolution, whatever, the late 1700s, you would have the French Revolution, which was sort of anti-church, come in and turn these yeah, churches... Anything yeah. against hmm? the churches. Throw just... out the Christianity and turn it into a intellectual temple of reason. Mm. And of course, these relics made no sense at all. Yeah, a storage
3: place. I mean, and, uh, we were talking place. about the Saint Chapelle. The Chapelle was a storage place with, with the grain And then place. after that
0: movement, uh, we get the swing of the pendulum back. Yeah, and, and Napoleon's
3: uh, coming on, he's re putting the church on. And, and, and the and, uh, relic was
0: probably burned or destroyed, but they find a new they one. They found a the new
3: one.
4: Miraculously. Ones. It, Miraculously. It saved.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a matter of faith. You know, in right. France, there are so many <laughs> churches that burn down, and then in the ashes, they find a veil, the veil with, the, with, the, with the image of Jesus or something and then the pilgrims start to come and more pilgrims start to come and they get plenty of money and they can build a new church bigger and better than ever right. well, in medieval time we had three heads of Saint John the Baptist around Europe I mean. there you go thanks for your call William thank you very much you guys have a good day take, take care it seems there's a favorite saint or two for nearly every town in France we're learning about a few of the national favorites right now on Travel with Rick Steves from French tour guides Julie Sanvo and Patrick Vidal you know a big big destination in France is Lourdes and when you have a pilgrimage site usually there is an what do you call it an apparition where the devout people in that town see something coming down from heaven Bernadette is a big big popular destination for pilgrims what do we know about Lourdes and Saint Bernadette
3: Well she was uh, as long as I remember she was a farmer and uh, and she saw the virgin Mary a couple of in times the cave, yeah. uh, in a in a cave uh, just on the outskirts of uh, of Lourdes As usual, it was not very easy to recognize the uh, the miracle, and it took a little bit of time to be recognized. But since then, Lourdes became in Europe one of the one of the massive uh, pilgrimage place. Uh, The water is supposed to be holy water down there, and and, uh, uh, miraculous healing. Miraculous healing
0: healing comes from the water, yes. And you know, whatever you think about the original event, it is an amazing display of faith. And people do go there, and train loads of people Mm -hmm. go down there. Mm -hmm. It's still, experience. still nowadays it's huge. It's enormous. I've been there a couple of times, and it is, and 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 is just an amazing spectacle. Yeah, and people come there and throw away their crutches. You know, it's uh, it's 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 quite a spectacle. Yeah, it's, it's very spectacular. Mm. Yeah. So that is Lords uh, in the Pyrenees mountains in the south of France. And the last uh, saint I just want to touch on is uh, famous for a little um, well, a, a striking abbey. Build it big, and they will come. On an island off of the coast of Normandy in Brittany, Saint Michel, Saint Michel, Saint Michael,
3: Saint Michael, yeah, Saint Michael's Mount.
0: What, what's about Saint Michael?
3: Well, first of all, St. Michael is, uh, is supposed to be uh, waiting for you on the day of the Last Judgment, and he's taking you on your way to heaven or hell if you're in trouble, but he's always at the top.
4: Right, last stop so to heaven. So
3: anything, anything built for St. Michael is on top of the hill somewhere. Oh, is that right? Yeah. High up. Yeah, so, yeah, he's your
4: last stop before heaven.
0: Well, and that is your quintessential abbey on a hilltop is Mont Saint-Michel. It stands it like an, yes. a striking yes. mountain in the middle of this vast tidal flat.
4: Right, with a golden Archangel Michael on top.
0: Uh, it's quite stirring, Mont Saint-Michel.
3: Yeah, so if you Mais come bien to bien Saint-Michel, bien. you have to climb.
0: saint Sanveau, Patrick Vidal, merci bien. Merci Merci
4: Rick. à vous. Bless you. <laughs> 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 Dominique,
6: Annie, Annie, Cassandra, tout simplement. Oh Dieu, pauvre et chantant. En tout chemin, en tout lieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu. L'époque où Jean Santerre d'Angleterre était le roi, Dominique, notre père combattit les albigeois. Dominique, les caniques s'en allaient tout simplement, outiers, pauvres En tout chemin, en tout lieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu, il ne parle que du bon Dieu.
0: Like any good actor trying to understand a character, David Suchet went to Israel with a film crew to see what he could learn about the first century world St Peter lived in. Hear what he discovered in just a bit on today's travel with Rick Steves. But first, Irish tour guide Stephen McPhillamy returns along with Kathy Ryan to tell us what they've discovered about some of Ireland's favorite saints. When you spend time with the Irish, you find that many of the national saints of Ireland remain very much alive in their hearts. Hundreds of saints are recognized for helping establish the Gaelic church in its early centuries even spreading the Christian faith to Britain. They now serve as patrons for different professions, places, and special circumstances. Irish monks are credited with saving Western civilization during Europe's Dark Ages, and a group of martyrs were beatified by John Paul II for defending their religion against the cruelties of English rulers back in the 16th and 17th centuries. For a look at how the Irish revere their saints and scholars, we're joined by Stephen McPhillamy, He was raised Catholic in Northern Ireland and now lives in Dingle in the south. And Kathy Ryan is a musician who sings about the traditions of Ireland. She was born to Irish immigrants in Detroit and has now made her own home in Ireland's County Louth. Stephen, Kathy, welcome. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having us. Ireland is known as the land of saints and scholars. Kathy, why is that?
1: When Patrick and the bishops before him, who we never hear about, came to Ireland, they came to a country that was inhabited by Druids and pagans, and they brought Christianity with them. And they also brought the love of the Bible, literature, story, and they wanted to write it. I mean, they understood the importance of capturing it, not just orally, but making it permanent. Unchangeable.
0: And Saints and Scholars is relative to the rest of Europe, which was in the Dark Ages at the time. Exactly. So you have yes. that bright light of faith and literacy in Ireland.
1: Absolutely. And they really loved story. And they loved the adoration of God and spirit, something transcendent, which I think is very, very Celtic. It's very it's so, Irish.
0: Like you say, they loved story. And mm. that was... 1,500 years ago. And today, Ireland loves stories. It I hasn't mean, changed. It, has, it <laughs> hasn't changed. Now, Stephen McPhillamy, Ireland is uh, its Catholic as can be. Whether people go to church or not, it just seems like it's a Catholic land. Why is Ireland so Catholic, whereas England might not be so definitively Catholic? Of course, when the Reformation came, our choice was to stay
5: Catholic for spiritual reasons, but also for political reasons and pride reasons. You know, the English were also conquering us at the same time. Okay, so and Henry d- dissolved all the Catholic monasteries and everything in England, and Ireland had bucked that. And we remained loyal and steadfast to the Vatican. And, of course, to have changed at that time would also have been seen to be loyal to the new invaders coming in. Right. So there maybe was a patriotic aspect to it as well.
0: When you think about traveling in Ireland, there's this fascination or this enjoyment of uh, medieval ferries and sacred forts and holy wells and so on. Is that indigenous? Does that go back before Christianity came to Ireland?
1: I believe it did, 100%. I mean, I think that's what Yeats, the whole Celtic revival was using, was magnetized to. They wanted the Irish to understand and the world to understand that the Irish had this mystical level, this transcendent level. that They weren't part of the Industrial Revolution, that that was their magic. That was what made them special and different.
5: Yeah, and our whole culture of the holy wells, I mean, I don't recall seeing that anywhere in theology or, you know, it's really
0: specific to Ireland. So that's an indigenous and it can be incorporated into the more modern Christianity, but it was there before. It was the the compost pile from which the Irish complexes grew. And the
5: Celts saw some purification in the water that was in these wells. So then when we became Christian, we still wanted to go to the wells. So they just became... St. Patrick's Wells or St. Bridget's Wells. If ever you want to
0: conquer a country religiously, you you incorporate the uh, indigenous. You co-opt what's already there. I mean, Christmas was on uh, a a pagan holiday. That's December 25th, and uh, Easter would have been something similar, I would imagine. was
1: the Celtic New Year.
0: There you go. And
1: there, all of those wells and those sacred places, they were always venerated because they had this resonance. They were the thin places, where the veil between this world and the other world is very thin.
0: Thin
5: places. I've never thought of that.
1: That's
0: very cool.
5: And
1: you can feel it.
5: I remember getting dragged off to a holy well when I was probably 10 by my mother because I had a verruca or a planter's wart on my foot. So we traveled a long distance so that I could get my foot dipped into the well and cured by the well. Now, it did get cured, but... (laughs) Was it the spiritual healing powers of the well, or, or I don't know, but or was I, I believe. It. Yeah,
0: that's certainly a factor. And that. your mother did this. Took yeah. you'd found a long drive to take care of a wart by dropping it in a holy well.
5: Yeah, and this is a university-educated woman. Yeah, uh, you know, who brought me all that way, and who had a belief in it. So yeah. as a result, I, I am Kathy, and we all grew up with that respect for it as well. Right.
1: I just took a friend to a healer in County Louth, where I live. She got a burn on her foot. I was on the way to e E&R and and a friend of mine said, what, you have to bring her to Seamus. <laughs> He's on the road to Green Ore. Don't be taking her into the hospital. And he, he saw her three times and he healed her foot. And her foot was boiling. Water fell on it. She took the sock off, took the skin off, and in three days she was at Heathrow Airport with a pair of shoes on, walking around. So there are still healers. I in bet Ireland. that's an
0: interesting challenge for the the priests and so on to yes. to re- try to respect these. Oh, uh,
1: they'd go to them as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you got this uh, inclusiveness. Let's say it's inclusivity. Yes. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and singer Kathy Ryan and tour guide Stephen McPhillamy are helping us get to know the saints of Ireland and their importance to Irish identity today. So the Irish have a, uh, an enthusiasm for saints and, and for their faith, and, and I know both of you love music. Does it show itself in traditional music? Because that's such an important part of the Irish culture.
1: A lot of the songs, uh, a lot of the spiritual, religious songs would have been wiped out because of the penal laws, 1600s to 1800s. There's not a lot of them extant, but a lot of the poetry was, and it's been put to music. There are still some old songs, like the Kina Majin, the Lament of Mary, or the Kina na the Lament of the Three Marys. And the lyrics are absolutely beautiful, 25 verses long, but there's not many of
0: them. So that's a lament that uh, survived the English trying to put down the culture. Yes. And yes. it was sung as sort of a, almost a, a statement that we're not going to be put down and kept alive in the popular culture through the pubs and the, in the families when they'd gather and sing. In the
1: families at holidays and certainly many more, and Stephen can attest to this as well, many more songs were written Might during Might you actually that hear that time. lament
0: in a pub if you went?
1: Probably not so much. And on a Sunday, maybe, yes. The, you'd, you'd be very reverent about a mm-hmm. song like that. You wouldn't just sing it can anywhere. Can you sing just
0: a little bit of one with yeah, the, so um, we can hear the lyrics and the beautiful melody?
1: I'll sing this one. This has been put to music by Liam Lawton, and mm-hmm. it's a 12th century text. It's called Magrasa Meia. And I sing this at sacred sites in Ireland when I'm there because mm-hmm. I think a lot of them need to be sung, not have pictures taken. hmm Allelu,
6: allelu. Hallelujah maglañor stumay hallelujah Ismahir ma gramma cream ma gramma cream ma ma fatu arina gloria. Allelu, allelu. Kathy,
0: that's beautiful. So what essentially were you saying to translate that into English?
1: Um, Allelu and uh, Jesus. You are my love and I adore you. So it
0: really is praise music that goes from a literature from before from medieval times
1: yes from a poem to set a to song.
0: 20th century music yes and where would you sing where would you find as a tour guide you would sing that in what would, sort of a sacred place
1: I, I would sing it in if i was in glendalough in uh-huh. st kevin's church just to be standing in it it's extraordinary maybe Galarus oratory in uh, dingle one yeah. of the great antiquities and these, these
0: are religious stone buildings that go back to what people consider the dark ages in europe the the 500 to 1000 period
1: yes and to sing those songs and then they're it takes you out special, of, of yeah. the sight.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy and Kathy Ryan, who just blessed us with her beautiful voice. You know, when we think about Ireland, you got to think about St. Patrick. Stephen, who was he? Well, St. Patrick is a very
5: interesting figure because there's many arguments that he was this or that or this person or this person and he may not even have existed. Hmm. General historical belief is that he was a man called Patricius who was a Roman citizen who lived somewhere in the north of England or maybe north of Wales. The narrative goes that he was kidnapped by Irish raiders because the Irish used to raid, ironically used to attack Britain a lot back in those Mm. days and we would carry off slaves. Slaves were a big part of Celtic culture and Celtic society so they'd be brought back and he would work and St. Patrick was brought back to work as a shepherd boy for... I think seven years or something up in... Um, and this, do I understand uh,
0: this is Roman Britain, but the Romans never went to Ireland, so you would raid into the Roman zone. And yeah, we'd take be like out. the barbarians
5: going the barbarians into the... coming into r- England r- and capture some young civilized Christian Roman Britain. Oh, yeah. Like St. Patrick's father had been a priest in the early Christian church, we think. Right. And uh, so he came as a, as a shepherd boy. Uh, God appeared to him in a dream and told him to go to the coast where a boat would be waiting for him to take him off. And then he should go then and become a priest in the early church. And he should learn more about Christianity. And he did that. He went back to live with the people in his home village. But uh, he was having nightmares. And in these nightmares, the people of Ireland were burning, as a metaphor for them, burning in the fires of hell. So a voice came to him in his dream and said, we ask you, boy, come and walk once more amongst us. So that was his call to go back to the Irish and uh, convert us from being pagans. So he brought
0: pagans. Christianity to Ireland.
5: Yeah, that's yeah. the general belief. But as but that's Ath- about
0: uh, in the year 500 or something like this. Yeah, this is 432 AD. 432. Uh, and to this day, uh, St. Patrick's, uh, pretty big deal in Ireland, but uh, St. Patrick's Day is uh, in some ways bigger in the United States, isn't it? Yeah, it's big all over. I mean, uh, growing up in Ireland, though, it was always big. It just
5: wasn't this big drinking fest that it is in America and Australia and Britain, which I think is unfortunate. But when, mm-hmm. when we were growing up, like there was a military parade sometimes, and there'd be... The local sports teams would march, and they'd always be, You'd go to mass in the morning, and maybe some of the older men would go off for drinks, but it would not. It was a holy nothing. day. Yeah, it, yeah. Was yeah. it was a holy, holy, day. holy day. And Saint yeah.
0: Patrick used the uh, shamrock to d- illustrate the Trinity, right? The yes. three leaves on a shamrock. Yeah, that's right. But yeah.
1: his mountain is venerated. It's a pilgrimage site in County Mayo in Murrisk. They have a huge day in the summertime. That's right. Reek yeah. the Sunday. mountain Sunday, and mm-hmm. you. Begin in the evening, sort of an on homage to the Celtic lore, that the day starts in the night. Mm-hmm. And you begin your trek up that mountain, and you do your pilgrimage, you do the stations, and then many people take off their shoes and climb that shaly, huge cairn at the top, barefoot. Oh, okay. uh,
0: I've uh, heard about that barefoot climb, yeah, and it's near the, Westport, to you know, remember yeah, St. Yeah, This happens
5: every year at the same time, when is it? Last Sunday in July. Last Sunday in July. Uh, we'll July. called Reek Sunday. Near Westport, near Westport, yeah. and a cool walk. If anybody's ever going by, there, just stop the car and go up. You probably get up there. It's I've beautiful. done it probably fifteen times. You know, when you've, you've done it. Yeah. Oh, any time when you're driving up. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. I've Bare, never done the action. barefoot. Yeah. Uh, I did a barefoot once, but it was just taking me so long. Yeah, that I just had to put the put shoes on some back shoes. on. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think that's fine.
5: <laughs>
1: I would, I would do it in shoes. I, that's what <laughs> yeah. I would yeah. recommend. Oh, yeah. It feels like a pilgrimage. Nice. You don't have to be Catholic.
0: What about Saint Bridget?
1: Ah, I love Bridget. I love the energy of Bridget, and I love that. In Saint Bridget you get such an interweave of the goddess Bridget that it's hard to tell them apart. You can't pull the strands.
0: You mean goddess Bridget being a Celtic goddess who yes. was there before, before the Before Bridget ever oh, was. Okay, so there's another example of the indigenous religion being grafted into the new religion.
1: Exactly. And her feast day is on the 1st of February, and in honor of the Celts, it's celebrated beginning the night before And what does she mean to
0: Catholics in Ireland?
1: I think it's important to say one of the reasons, I think anyway, saints are so important to the Irish is because of the penal laws, is because they couldn't always celebrate their Mass in community. So God and Mary the saints became very intimate companions.
0: So the penal laws, so our listeners understand, and and me too, when the English overlords wanted to crush the indigenous culture, which was Catholic also, they said, you cannot do this. Is that right?
1: You can't go to mass. You can't speak your language. You can't be educated. It's
0: like the Scottish people couldn't uh, wear kilts and play the bagpipes. I think the harp in Ireland was suddenly not okay.
1: Right. No, music was not okay.
5: The penal laws applied to all of the United Kingdom, though not just Ireland, applied mm-hmm. in Scotland and Wales as well, but in Ireland was the only real Catholic nation of the four I mentioned so there, so it was most felt there.
0: Do I understand that some Irish saints are, are not beatified by the Vatican? They're just Irish initiatives? I'd imagine the vast majority aren't because they're from an early Celtic church before it became
1: okay, linked
5: so in with Roman yeah. Catholicism
1: when they got it all organized and orderly and changed everything. But that never stopped the Irish. You know, we're very tribal and we know who we love and who we want to venerate. Maybe but it's
0: part of your heritage also of never being conquered by the Romans. I'm quite sure that's a massive huge. factor.
1: But let me just get, if you don't mind, I'd love to just get back to Bridget because... She's the patroness of so many things, stemming from fertility, going to creativity, and then transformation, taking disparate things and turning them into something living or long-lasting. So she's the patroness of blacksmiths, of midwives, of poets. And I love that. The great poet of the Druids would go through the town with an apple branch and little bells on it to let the people know, in honor of Bridget, that he was coming back to sing them back to themselves. I love that.
0: Long-lasting things, blacksmiths, midwives, and poets. poets.
1: <laughs> and also animals. She was a patron saint of animals as well.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Irish saints with two Irish tour guides, Kathy Ryan from County Louth and Stephen McFelemy from Dingle Peninsula. When I think about Ireland, I think of a heroic struggle against the English. A lot of great patriots were martyred in the struggle against the English. Are some of them considered saints... Yeah, we've had saints who were martyred in
5: the 1600s when the English would come in. These were mostly priests and bishops who refused to accept the rule of the Church of England, so they were executed, and then they have since been beatified by the Catholic Church official officially Catholic saints. Okay, so Rome embraced the importance of this. Yeah, and the most uh, famous, or my favorite, in a way, is St. Oliver Plunkett, associated with the town of Drogheda. And St. Oliver Plunkett was a great man, but he was sort of framed and set up and convicted of treason and he was taken to the Tower of London where he was hung, drawed and quartered and his head was chopped off and thrown into a fire but the head never burned. It never decayed and the head is now in a glass box in St Peter's Cathedral on the main street in Drogheda. It's in a big gold box. There's an ornamentation on the box that must be 25 feet tall. They have uh, DNA tested this uh, uh, head, head and they've done tests with local people who would be his descendants so we can safely say it is his head. Uh-huh it's also, no. you just look at him, it's just his head, but he was, he was made a saint <laughs> it's by an the, extraordinary the Vatican sight. in the 1970s.
0: So you're down. driving north of Dublin, and, and that's quite a remarkable little side trip as you head it's further north.
1: absolutely beautiful. They call it the Emerald Valley, and it's the gateway to the north. Continue on up the highway, and then stop at Faughart F-A-U-G-H-E-R-T, which is the birthplace of St. Bridget. And her healing stones are there, which predate the oracle at Delphi. And there's healing stones for the eyes, for the mind, whether it's mental illness or whether you're suffering from depression or headaches. She has a knee stones, a heart stone, fertility stone. It's an extraordinary place Predating to visit.
0: Delphi. That, we're talking 500 BC.
1: Yes. Talking a long time long
5: ago. Long time. And then when you're finished there, if you want, you can continue on up the road to a town called Down Patrick where there's a three for one special waiting for you. Because <laughs> in the graveyard, in the graveyard of the church there, you have St. Patrick. St. Bridget and St. Columba all buried in the one tomb. Columba, Columbkill,
1: yeah. Oh my
5: yeah.
0: goodness, an that, eternal
5: party. Yeah, just to, just to make that point, St. Columba is also called St. Columba Kill. Uh, and no discussion about Irish saints would be complete without mentioning that great man as well, because he was the man who brought Christianity to Scotland, you see. From Ireland. From Ireland, and he's also supposed to have killed the Loch Ness Monster. He's a double hero. Double hero. And he
1: was a great copyist. He inspired the copiers of the monasteries to do the books like the Book of Kells. Oh, so we know the Book of Kells. Art.
0: And this was the great art of the Dark Ages yes. of the 8th, and 9th, 10th oh, century, that area. <laughs> you talk about the history like you lived it. It's amazing how close people in a place like Ireland are to their heritage. To be able to dip into that in your travels brings your travels to life. And of course, as a tour guide, that's your profession, to share that with all the people who visit your country so they can be inspired by the rich heritage and history that's all around when you travel. Stephen McFillamy, Kathy Ryan, thank you so much, and I hope to see you in Ireland. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. actor David Suchet traveled to Israel to understand the world St. Peter lived in. He shares what he discovered next on Travel with Rick Steves. ¶¶ Simon Bar-Jonah made his living fishing on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. His encounter with Jesus would change everything. The man who came to be known as Simon Peter and would later be honored as Saint Peter has held a special interest for British actor David Suchet. A few years ago, David wanted to understand the world Peter lived in and how it influenced the beginnings of Christianity. So he took a BBC film crew to Israel to produce a travel documentary called In the Footsteps of St. Peter as a follow-up to his well-received special In the Footsteps of St. Paul. David, it's good to have you back on Travel with Rick Steves.
2: It's such a pleasure.
0: David, I really liked what you did with your documentaries. Now, Paul traveled all over the Mediterranean to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Where did you go to follow the life of St.
2: Peter? I think the first place to start would be Galilee because Peter had a rather entrepreneurial fishing business, With James and John, a lot of people think that Peter might have been very, very poor. I have a feeling that he was doing quite well, really, with his fishing business on the lakes of Galilee. And in fact, when Jesus called James and John to follow him, and they immediately, it says in the Bible, just let their nets go and followed him, they were leaving quite a big business behind them. So um, something extraordinary happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Saint Peter was with Jesus and chosen by Jesus as one of his twelve apostles. And he followed Jesus all around uh, Jesus' teaching in Galilee. And when we go further north to a place called Banyas, in Israel, now what was wonderful in this place is he turned round to his twelve and he said, Who do people say that I am? Now, the reason he did that was because this place in the walls of the rock all around you are little temples to pagan gods, and there are little slabs where they would sacrifice goats and sheep and things like that. Jesus took them there and asked them, not only who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am, i.e., in comparison to all these other pagan gods. And it was Peter who confessed who he thought Jesus was. But he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, virtually, yes, I am. And then he said to Peter, of course, and it's on this rock. You are Peter, i.e. the rock. That's his name, Peter the rock. And on this rock, I build my church.
0: And you see that in the dome under towering 100 meters over where
2: Peter is buried. It says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. I, I have a slightly different take as a child of the Reformation. I personally wish I could have been there because I'd love to know what Jesus did with his hands when he said, Ah. on this rock, I build my church. Where was he pointing? (laughs) Was he pointing at Peter? Was he pointing at the rock around him? Or was he pointing at himself? Uh I personally feel, and there will be millions of Christians that will disagree with me, Uh, That's okay. I personally feel that by pointing his finger to Peter, he would have been pointing his finger to a man that was actually failing him all the time. Hmm. He could have been meaning Peter's confession that he was the Christ, but I personally feel that he was pointing to himself upon, yes, Peter, you've got that right, and Hmm. upon this rock, me, Ah. the Christ. And
0: the message that he was bringing.
2: Yes, and therefore him himself, Christ, was the rock.
0: So, David, as a Christian going to these sites in the Holy Land, I remember sitting on the Sea of Galilee with my Jewish guide reading from the Bible, and I've never really enjoyed hearing the Bible read as much as when I was right there on the Sea of Galilee.
2: Rick, what you've just described is exactly... What anybody, any believer going to Israel, going to Galilee will feel, and they call it visiting and and, and moving in the places where Jesus walked. They actually call it the fifth gospel because it gives you such a credibility that you you cannot access just from the written word. But by standing there, by walking where Jesus walked, and you hear him using nature, like the lilies and the the reeds, and you're walking there and you're... It just comes alive in a way that the written word doesn't. And you're standing, you can take a boat and go onto the Sea of Galilee and you can look. And I remember my wife, Sheila, nudging me and said, Look, look at that view, David. And I said, Well, what, what, yes, it's beautiful. No, she said, No, that view wouldn't have changed in 2000 years and Peter and Jesus and all his disciples on the sea of Galilee would have looked maybe at that same view and this really was so exciting i cannot tell you it, the by being in the area by being in that in Galilee and where mm-hmm. Jesus actually taught it really is it it solidifies your faith
0: you know there's a gorgeous church in a garden on a mount I think it's called the Church of the Beatitudes, where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and I was there with a bunch of African Christians who were singing. And I'm thinking you mentioned the fifth gospel being being right there on those holy stones, and then Luther liked to say, "He
2: who sings prays double." I think that you're you're so right because even in in Jerusalem my favorite church in Jerusalem is is the church of st annes actually and they have the most wonderful acoustics there and if if anybody is going there and you can just sit in the seats in the pews because every group of christian you know the tour groups or whatever that come into that church they go into either a deliberate song or mm-hmm. spontaneous song mm-hmm. and when it's spontaneous and those those acoustics are famous for this. The sound is just spine-tingling. Yeah, this is and making, as you said, uh, in, the, in the Church of the Beatitudes up in uh, Galilee, exactly the same thing. Uh, it's just amazing. Oh David Suchet is
0: a major figure in London theater and may be best known in America for his 25 years as the star of Agatha Christie's Poirot on TV. He's telling us what he learned about the first-century life of Simon Peter when he explored the Holy Land and Rome for the BBC travel documentary called In the Footsteps of St. Peter. You might find it on your local public TV schedule, and it's distributed on DVD by Vision Video. Among David's other projects, he narrates the entire new international version of the Bible. You can also listen to our Travel with Rick Steves interview with David about the footsteps of St. Paul. It's in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. Look for program number 481. It's from April in 2017. David, watching your documentary on the footsteps of Peter, it really was clear that when you actually travel up to the Sea of Galilee you can find artifacts that that really sort of cause you to go back to a 1st century A.D. frame of mind. I mean, you can actually find, as you pointed out, lead weights and needles for mending the the nets for the fishermen. And there's actually uh, a boat from the 1st century, a well-worn boat with iron staples holding it together. They call it the Jesus boat, right?
2: Yeah, that was an extraordinary experience when I was making the program on St. Peter to be shown this 1st century fishing boat It was an extraordinary find, but it put the whole life of Peter and the Apostles and their industry into perspective. This isn't a big boat by any means. And you can imagine by being in a boat like this, when the storms that come over the Sea of Galilee and big waves, you can imagine them being absolutely terrified. They're not like great big fishing trawling boats of today. And and just by looking at that boat and by being in a close vicinity to it, you really are taken back to the first century, and that is so grounding.
0: It is interesting to look at it from a historical point of view. Like, Capernaum is the place on the Sea of Galilee where there was the most commerce. And that happened to be where, the I think, the Jordan River comes into the Sea of Galilee. And that would be where the water was most aerated, where there'd be the best fishing. And fishing was a big part of the industry. Talk a little bit more about the sightseeing you see around Capernaum, and what were some of the impactful sights that you saw?
2: Well, the tourist sites are there for everybody to see, and I won't repeat all those. But what I will say is that the early Christians, or the early followers of the way, they had to worship in secret. They were very, very persecuted in an area that was ruled by Rome and persecuted by their own and so the beginnings of the group that were following this rabbi at the time that was preaching such a message that had nothing to do with the local Jewish belief. I mean, here was a man who was saying to his disciples and the poor, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This turned the whole uh, world view of Judaism on its head, So he was quite a revolutionary figure in his day. And that that whole area of Galilee and and as you walk around it, I think rather than any particular place, if I was saying to anybody what to do there is obviously, yes, and go to the tourist sites. But once again, I would find moments of peace Mm -hmm. just walking around the lake or find somewhere and just sit quietly, look, gaze, and realize that you are there with them.
0: Who was the tent maker of the apostles?
2: That was Paul. Paul. That was Paul. He was a tent maker. Yeah, that's how he earned his living.
0: And you can find yourselves in uh, nomadic uh, communities where there are tent makers today with the same kind of black goat hair tents.
2: Yeah, oh, that's right. But we've got to remember with Paul that he was also, one of his bigger uh, assets was that he was also a Roman citizen. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was some theory that his family were perhaps uh, slaves, uh, Roman slaves. But, yes, no, he was the tent maker, and wherever he went on his travels, he would set up his his little tent-making business.
0: There are these sort of echoes of 2,000-year-ago economy and civilization, the the goat-hair tents, the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, and so on. Getting back to the footsteps of St. Peter, David, Peter died, according to legend, in Rome, It's conceivable he would have gone to Rome because this is before the Diaspora, uh, when the Romans destroyed the temple and, and the Jews dispersed all over the known world. I believe that was A.D. 70. So a couple decades before that, Peter could have gone to Rome because there was actually a Jewish community in Rome that predated the Diaspora, a business community, and that's where the ghetto is in Rome to this day. Tell us about Peter in Rome and what is the veracity of the fact that he was killed there, and buried on the Vatican Hill, and on that cemetery was built St. Peter's Basilica.
2: Well, if you go into the, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, its I think it's called the Chirazzo uh, Chapel, mm-hmm. um, the Santa Maria del Popolo, uh, the church there, you will see the most extraordinary painting by Caravaggio of St. Peter being crucified upside down and the theory is that he was crucified in Rome and chose not to be crucified the correct way up because that was the way Jesus was crucified, so he was he chose to be crucified upside down. If you go and venture to the catacombs in Rome, you will see on a wall images of Peter with Paul and prayers written to both of them on broken tiles. And that would suggest, I'm told, that Peter could have been buried in the catacombs, and then his ossuary, which contained his bones, was then later moved to where the Vatican Mm -hmm. is now. If I'm going to be perfectly honest, and I, I feel that I can do no other, I'm not sure that Peter actually got to Rome, because I feel... And having read the New Testament and Paul's letters over and over and over, and the Acts of the Apostles over and over and over, nobody mentions Peter in Rome. Nobody mentions him at all. In fact, Peter just disappears from the Acts of the Apostles very suddenly and never comes back. Hmm. We don't actually really know. There's lots of books. There's books called The Bones of St. Peter, and lots of people have written to try and prove that he was there. And it could be the case, but I would like still further proof because it's not there paul never mentions being with peter in rome and you know (laughs) i wonder how this little fisherman peter would feel walking into the vatican now Mm. called st (laughs) peter's i wonder how he would look at that and how he would react i'm not sure he would have the biggest smile on his face a
0: billion roman catholics love the idea that peter was yes and i'm not pointing
2: and not i'm not pointing any fingers at right. the catholics I, it's just my personal belief that mm-hmm. as much as i would like to believe that peter was in rome i think he would have been documented as having gone there because peter was perhaps with john one of the very, very favorite disciples. Mm. And because of that, he would have been like a hero to his followers after Jesus' ascension.
0: Oh, so it would have been big news if he was there. It would have, would have been big news about, yeah. for him
2: to visit Rome. And there's, none, there's, nothing, there's mm-hmm. nothing in the Acts of the Apostle to say he ever went there. He just suddenly disappears. And the, what we know is that he wrote to people in Cappadocia. And uh, that's why I went to the cave churches in Cappadocia, in Gorem, which are just amazing. We know that he wrote to the people in Cappadocia. You know, there's some indication that, that he wrote about Babylon in one of his letters. And people say, well, that was Rome. But, you know, I would like to see harder evidence. And if I did see harder evidence, I would applaud it and welcome it. But at the moment, my own feeling is that Peter actually didn't get there.
0: Was Babylon a code word for Rome?
2: That's what they say.
0: Hm. So it would have been if you were doing anything subversive within the Roman Empire, you wouldn't you might say something bad about Babylon to be a kind of a wink wink we're talking about the empire. Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. Of course there's
0: wonderful inspirational religious sites all over the Eastern Mediterranean, but uh, you call Jerusalem what you consider the most religious city anywhere. Let's just uh, close our discussion here about the footsteps of Paul with With an image in Jerusalem, what is it about Jerusalem that that really takes you back and and connects you with your faith?
2: I think standing, if you ever go to the Austrian hospice, which is right in the center of Jerusalem and on the actual Via Doloroso, uh, where they say that Jesus walked to, to the cross, if you go into the Austrian hospice and you stand at the very top on its roof and look around that city... And you'll see the Dome of the Rock and you'll see different churches and you are aware that this city was fought over. People died for it. There were the Crusades. Islam came and took Mm -hmm. it from the Crusaders. Mm -hmm. And there is so much blood on that soil that ironically is the religious capital of the world
0: in the skyline is a commotion of crosses and crescents, reminding people that it's such a holy place for Christians, Muslims, and Jews alike.
2: And yet, it's the place famous for the greatest hostilities, Mm -hmm. even today.
0: So poignant, and so inspiring to actually go and travel there, and I'd encourage anybody who's curious to not wait for things to, quote, settle down. I mean, uh, if you're going to do that, it's never going to happen. If you want to go to Israel and the Holy Land, do it now. It's Perfectly safe from thousands and thousands of people who go there. And I highly recommend if you do go to Israel to make sure you, you cross the wall and go to the West Bank of uh, Palestine as well as Israel and, and hear both narratives and recognize there's a lot of powerful biblical sites uh, on the Palestine side of the wall as well as in Jerusalem and up in Galilee. Absolutely. Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem. Isn't it interesting to think that Bethlehem, which is in Palestine, you could bicycle yes. from Bethlehem where where people believe Jesus was born to to uh, Jerusalem where they believe he was crucified. You could bike there in, in half an hour, uh, but there's a yeah. wall that, that makes it a world apart today.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a sad, sad thing that going into Bethlehem and coming out of Bethlehem, you have to go through border patrol guards. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, very different world, but close your eyes for one second when you're doing that and imagine that to be, instead of Israeli guards, Roman guards.
0: Wow spoken like a person who's been there and a person who's been there in a very thoughtful way. David Suchet, thank you for all of your work and thank you so much for
2: joining us. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to Vision Video and the BBC in London for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio.
2: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.